just before I start, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to say that um, what I shall be doing is um, obviously talking about Friedrich and German Romanticism and giving you some idea of Friedrich's paintings as a whole, but I will home in on four particular paintings um, in some uh, depth. The other paintings that I bring in, I will slot in to illustrate various points in my argument. Now, Caspar uh, David Friedrich, the greatest German landscape painter of the 19th century, has, has had only belated recognition over here. The first real exhibition of his work didn't take place until, as John has said, in, in uh, 1972 at the Tate. But this year's Spirit of an Age exhibition in the Sainsbury Wing at the National, where the first room has been showing seven of his pictures, indicates a reasserted presence, which I will try to make more tangible in my talk this evening. I will state grounds for wanting a more powerful and continuing presence, and this will involve tracing and clarifying Friedrich's roots in German Romanticism and the tradition of Northern Protestantism out of which he springs. Indeed, and I think, uh, Stephen, the first uh, slide I could have that now. Yes. Indeed, his self-portrait here, he did at least two others, he's about 29 there, belongs to a line of Protestant uh, interpretations of the self involving Dürer, Rembrandt, and Van Gogh, all of whom painted multiple self-portraits. I see this, uh, this is a very interesting one. Um, there is no flies on Friedrich there. This, he's very skeptical uh, um, and, and penetrating uh, gaze there. Um, I point out this because it seems to relate to a certain tradition of inwardness that, is, uh, that marks the Protestant tradition, particularly in Germany. One can think of it in terms of music as well, uh, uh, from Bach onwards. But as William Vaughan puts it in an excellent introductory essay to the 1972 Tate catalogue, to give an immediate characterization of Friedrich's milieu for an English audience is not easy. It will probably mean little at first to say that Friedrich was born in 1774 in the Pomeranian harbor town of Greifswald and that he spent most of his working life in Dresden, where he died in 1840. Uh, it is perhaps better to begin with temporal analogies and point out that his earliest works date from the time of the French Revolution and that he died a few years after the young Queen Victoria had, had ascended the, the English throne. The near contemporary of Turner, born 1775, and Constable, born 1776, he belonged, in fact, to that distinguished generation of European painters who created a new awareness of nature and made landscape painting one of the most fertile genres of the 19th century. Now, during my talk, I will try to give you a sense of the new awareness of nature that Friedrich created, and at the same time make some cross-references to Turner, Constable, and English Romanticism. For in this way, I hope to build up a recognizable and explanatory cultural context. But first of all, to paint in some determining features of Friedrich's life and actual milieu in northeastern Germany, a region that for a great part of the artist's life was part of Sweden as a result of the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. Only in 1815, after Waterloo, did it become part of Prussia when Caspar David was already 41. And it isn't therefore surprising to learn that Friedrich thought of himself um, as part Swedish, 
And this goes some way to explain the fact that in his late major picture, um, Die Lebensstufen, the uh, stages of life, painted around 1835, if we could have the next slide. Uh, if you actually, you probably can't see it on the slide, uh, just a faint hint of it, um, the children here are holding up the Swedish flag. Um, this is an allegorical picture, which obviously I have a, a very important picture. I haven't got time to go into it at the moment. I just wanted to slot it in from the historical uh, um, point of view. Um, now, the mention of Sweden also points to the cultural, economic, and political connections of the whole of North Germany with Scandinavia and Friedrich's own period of study at the Copenhagen Academy. It also relates to the artist's own determination not to visit Italy as his contemporaries, the Nazarenes, did, those forerunners of our own pre-Raphaelites, even though he was officially offered a trip there in 1817. As his friend Christian August Zemmler put it, quote Zemmler, the gloomy and meager nature of the North is best suited to the representation of religious ideas. This is undoubtedly an opinion stemming from a Reformation, Lutheran view of life, which of course counted for nothing in the case of Turner, but which echoes the view of that other regionalist constable who likewise felt no need to see and paint Italy. In Friedrichsen Constable's case, though with a different mixture of reasons, of course, Italy was felt to posit a danger to the identity of their own landscape vision. Certainly, regionalism is a factor in the rise of Romanticism, whether German or English, and further illustrates the Romantic drive towards the particular and specific, the individual as opposed to the general. And in terms of a larger regional scale, we can endorse Robert Rosenblum's highly insightful modern painting and the northern Romantic tradition, where Friedrich has a whole chapter to himself and is seen as a linchpin figure within this tradition. Now, in terms of his family background, he was the sixth of ten children, his father being a Greifswald soap and candle maker. Perhaps the next slide could be put on while I... Okay, at the moment. That's Greifswald, painted in 1818, watercolour. A younger brother, Christian, entering the joinery line of work. So basically of artisan background. The mother died in 1781 when he was seven, and tragically for him, another younger brother, Christopher, died in, in 1787 while trying to save Caspar David from drowning. These two early events do much to explain the painter's melancholy, reflective, and often brooding outlook on life. Still, other things superimpose themselves. Basically, a pietistic religion, the study of art, and the discovery and studied exploration of nature involving numerous trips to the Baltic island of Rügen, tours of the Harz Mountains and Riesengebirge, and visits into Bohemia and central Germany. What I think these concerns do is help Friedrich to master or distance his melancholy. The inherited Christian symbols of cross, anchor, church ruins, graveyards, processions of monks. The next slide, please. This is the Abbey in the Wood. Um, and distant cities as yearn for Jerusalems, the formal structures used to give meaning to the various landscapes, and the detailed knowledge of natural objects and scenes accumulated over uh, the years, all enable the painter to project and unify his visual and emotional experiences inner as well as outer. 
The following statement by the artist, one of his most quoted, brings him close to Blake. This is Friedrich. Close your bodily eye so that you may see your picture first with a spiritual eye. Then bring to the light of day that which you have seen in the darkness so that it may react upon others from the outside inwards. And here we can see how Friedrich, like most romantic painters and poets, is aware of the discrepancy between outer and inner worlds, but equally conscious of the necessity to bridge them with the creative priority ascribed to the latter, that is to say, the inner world. The la this last point emerges even more clearly in this next statement by him. The artist should not only paint what he sees before him, but also what he sees within him. If, however, he sees nothing within him, then he should also omit to paint that which he sees before him. Otherwise, his pictures will resemble those folding screens behind which one expects to find only the sick or even the dead. Perhaps the next slide will give you the detail of, of the... You can see the monks there coming in. This is the Eldena Monastery, the ruins uh, near Greifswald. Now, Greifswald itself... Uh, the Baltic city port in which Friedrich grew up was originally a trading settlement set up by the Eldena Monastery, a Cistercian foundation, um, by, by the year 12, 000, uh, uh, 1200 at the latest. In 1250, it received its charter, and in 1278, it joined the Hanseatic League. With this kind of location and early seafaring history, it is understandable that boats, sailing ships, the sea, fishermen's nets, and so on, together with uh, shores, dunes, and cliffs, should play a key role in quite a number of Caspar David's paintings. Never a large town, um, this is Greifswald, its 1985 population count was around 63,500. It still could boast a small university founded in 1456 and a number of medieval churches and townhouses. Indeed, Friedrich's first art teacher was J.G. Christop, drawing master at the university, while the poet and Lutheran pastor Ludwig Theobald Kosergarten, who had translated Gray's Elegy into German, uh, introduced the youth to Ossian, James Thompson's The Seasons, greatly admired by Turner, and Edward Young's Night Thoughts which together with, the, uh, with Robert Blair's The Grave, uh, 1743, made up the so-called graveyard school of poetry, a key influence on Friedrich, perhaps, vis-à-vis temperament and outlook. Kosergarten also taught the painter Philip Otto Runger in nearby Volgast, and like John Wesley, was an open-air preacher of some uh, charisma. He certainly made sure that Greifswald and its surroundings knew what was going on in the field of nature poetry, both German and English. And inspired by Scottish travelogues, a local historical awareness of dolmens pointing back into the Nordic past. Uh, Friedrich did quite a number of paintings of dolmens and oak trees. Um, I won't be showing any tonight, but this is just to fit this in. Now, during his four years at children and during the 1820s was immensely productive, obviously the result of newly found happiness and a surrounding sense of stability. Caroline appears in many of his pictures, especially the 1822 um, Frau am Fenster, Woman at the Window, uh, where she is painted. Could we have the next one? Oh, no, this is, um, I've forgotten this one. This is a very fascinating uh, view of Greifswald, by Friedrich, 
Um, and this is to also to point out the, um, the, um, the way in which he often uh, paints uh, cities or towns as kind of um, mirages on the horizon um, to which very often uh, you can see people are, are, uh, are yearning. Um, at this point, I would just like to bring in uh, as well um, one or two characteristics which you'll see coming out in more detail in later slides, the way in which uh, Friedrich um, orders his composition. Um, he he um, kind of um, constructs the landscape to a large extent in terms of horizontals, central verticals, and other verticals. Um, and gives thereby a kind of uh, geometrical um, symmetry to the painting. Um, this one is a very typical example. Um, and mood-wise, of course, it relates to moonlight, um, a time of the day that Friedrich uh, uh, valued as much as early morning and twilight, very romantic times of the day. I'll come on to this later on. So that it has something of the uh, impact of a vision that is slightly like a mirage, as it were, and we see the two men in the rowing boat placed directly under the main uh, tower here. It's, it's very difficult to say exactly what the, this balancing of verticals and horizontals adds up to. And indeed, if one could put it into words, then uh, Friedrich wouldn't have, had it uh, wouldn't have had the necessity to put it into paint. Um, but that, I think, is an extremely typical Friedrich landscape, um, supremely evocative and highly romantic at the same time. It's the next slide I really wanted to... Go yes, this is the, the woman at the window, and this is, this is his wife. Um, and this has been interpreted in, in a number of ways. Basically, uh, when one knows something about uh, Friedrich's oeuvre altogether, it's, it's, it's easier to see these things. It looks as if it's just simply a kind of um, a domestic interior. Um, but in actual fact, it's somewhat more than that. Um, it's delightfully intimate, um, but it has a symbolic dimension going beyond the domestic. Um, what um, the woman is looking at is looking out over the river, you see um, one large ship and another ship there passing in front of her. This is actually the Elbe River, and this is done from Friedrich's own house. It may even be his, um, his studio. Um, and um, she's looking over the river towards the land beyond, which here is painted in the form of a line of poplar trees. And Friedrich would have seen, in, to some extent in this, um, an image there of the, as it were, the captive soul who is looking to the, uh, to the beyond, as it were. One has also said that, um, unobtrusively, you get a cross-like formation in the, uh, uh, um, in the struts there. Um, and what is so very difficult when interpreting or responding to Friedrich uh, pictures is the uh, complexity and delicacy of the unobtrusive symbolism when he isn't using directly um, religious motifs that stand out uh, and to make um, something um, 
kind of um, coherent about them. Um, again, what you get, I'll come to this, is a typical tactic of Friedrich is to paint figures from behind so that we cannot see their faces. And so, therefore, we do not know what they're feeling, let alone what they might be thinking. This turns his figures into um, strange enigmas, very mysterious um, enigmas. Now, um, just the final bit of Friedrich's life I want to etch in. In 1825-6, he suffered a serious illness, um, and this led to a stroke in 1835. This, together with a decline in the popularity of his work, began to be, which began to be thought old-fashioned under the impact of a new realism that was coming up in the um, late 20s and 30s, or the 30s, rather, um, made him uh, develop a kind of persecution complex, sadly, um, in which he accused his wife of infidelity. He was jealous, and, and, and also he had a tremendous loss of earnings. So very sadly, the last years of Friedrich's life uh, were really financed by his friends. He died virtually in poverty, which is quite extraordinary. Very sad. But now let us try to get closer to an overall sense of Friedrich's art by taking three representative paintings and seeing what kinds of subject matter, symbolic themes, and landscape features emerge, what treatment of nature, formal structure, former structural approaches are being used, and how space, line, and color are thought of. And the three paintings are chronological. The first being, and we can have the next one, the famous Wanderer Above a Sea of Mists, done in 1818. Um, it is archetypally romantic. The term wanderer, in both German and English, referring to the type of lonely, isolated nature lover, or even aimless outcast, who begins to emerge with the rise of Romanticism, not before. One thinks of related figures that become a staple of Romantic poetry and music, such as the Wandering Jew and the Flying Dutchman. In whatever degree, these are all alienated individuals at odds with society or expelled from their community like the ancient mariner, and at one level or another are equally stand-ins for the Romantic artist himself. Uh, there is Wordsworth's unnamed wanderer in the excursion and an early dialogue poem of Goethe's titled Der Wanderer, which Schubert set to music, and a fine elegy by Hölderlin with the same title. Characters such as Shelley's Alastair and Byron's Manfred belong to the wanderer type, restless searching individuals who are basically questers, secular pilgrims. Indeed, the setting of Byron's drama, Among the Higher Alps, as it's called, as the stage direction puts it, is very similar to Friedrich's painting. Now, the picture itself possesses an evocative significance difficult to pin down. At one level, the painting is clear and unpuzzling. We see a dark-coated man with a walking stick or staff perched on a high but rough triangle of rocks, his back to the viewer gazing out and seemingly pondering on what appears to be a misty chasm divided by a chain of serrated rocks. Then another mist-filled ravine with hill slopes and mountains in the background. The sky over overhead is calm, whereas the mists below are moved and swirling. The man's auburn hair is blown to the left, 
But since we cannot see his face, again, any thoughts of, or feelings visible on it are hidden. This fact itself makes the figure mysterious, coupled with the central dominating position he has taken up. A silhouette viewed from behind, left foot forward, projected out over the sea of mist. The pose, the anonymity, plus the commanding presence, yet also doubtless his invisible questioning of what it is that extends before and below him, all would seem to point to something uh, um, obviously symbolic. For notice that the figure is not a fell walker or mountaineer, his dress being that of a 19th century urban gentleman, who is not a young man either. Uh, one might want to suggest that he is simply the unknown outsider here contemplating wild dramatic nature and life whose depths are veiled in mist. Um, Friedrich um, has many other paintings in which foregrounded figures are shown contemplated the landscape before them. It is a hallmark of his work and vision. But in this instance, the man would seem to be an especially conscious romantic icon of archetypal importance. The formal structure of the Wanderer picture is typical and determining for Friedrich's whole output. After settling in Dresden in 1798, the artist developed a broad and deep acquaintance with all natural forms and phenomena, so that when we look at his work close up, we find complete and detailed fidelity to these. His approach is meticulous in his, reco in his recording of the natural world. It seems and is, in one sense, realistic, there is nothing of romantic vagueness about it. But equally, the true-to-life ascription is contained and radically qualified by other elements. To make a quick comparison, there is nothing here of Constable's realism and fresh-air, dewy surface treatment of landscape. No concentration on the workaday world of agricultural labor. Though we sometimes get working boats, fishermen, as you saw in the moonlight uh, view of, of uh, Greifswald, and their nets. Moreover, there is no realistic fidelity one finds to actual places or times, no historical evocations, no topography. He is not interested in these as the young Thomas Girton and Turner were with their roots in the topographical and the picturesque. Friedrich always abstracts and generalizes away from the local into the imaginative and allegorical, whatever the specificities in rendering the natural scene and its pervasive mood or atmosphere. As further evidence of this, we know that he tended to mix and conflate items such as architectural ruins or landscape features such as rocks and hills taken from quite different locales. He just put them then together to make up what he wanted specifically to say. Um, the Eldena Monastery remains near uh, Greifswald, for instance. Um, uh, sorry, the Eldena Monastery uh, remains near Greifswald, for instance, are sometimes placed in surroundings totally other from those in which they, they're actually set. And all of this points to the fact that uppermost in Friedrich's mind is never a description or transference of outside realities, but rather the projection and an objectification of an imagined scene in specific symbolic ways. Note to begin with here the triangular foreground of rocks with the wanderer himself as an extension of this, and then the terrain uh, is sharply cut away and retreating like a series of theatrical kulisses. There is no orthodox perspective. 
No continuous spatial recession giving an illusion of depth as in most Renaissance and 18th century art, but an abrupt shift or leap from the foreground to the background. You see, from here over there. Um, and so um, what happens that he usually tends to omit what you call the middle ground. And this basic pictorial device is used again and again. Uh, this being so, the device um, undoubtedly points to the nature of Friedrich's visual uh, world. There is the here and now, then the beyond. And the paintings represent a dialogue between the two. They embody and so make visible that romantic awareness of the separation between life as we know it in the main, as routine, perplexity, a tangle of aims and values, or simply ineluctable suffering, and a sense or intimation of what lies beyond. Whether this is Blake's Jerusalem, Keats's Nightingale World, or Novalis's and Emily Bronte's welcoming and sustaining darkness. These are all romantic positions, English as well as German. And in Friedrich's more overtly Christian pictures, undoubtedly pietist as well. Regarding the wanderer, however, his position above the sea of mists would appear to put him in a spot from where he can contemplate life's misty turmoil. One notes the symbolic symmetry of the painting, virtually geometric in the way the mounting gazer centers the whole work and joins up the triangle of the foreground with the shallow inverted triangle of distant hill slopes. You see what I mean? This there parallels compositionally what we get there. Um, the whole of space and rocks is balanced, but not obtrusively so. Finally, here as in other Friedrich's paintings, we are looking at someone looking at the scene. That is to say, Friedrich is not simply portraying a scene, uh, but rather the act of looking at and contemplating one. This gives his whole approach a self-conscious dimension, totally in keeping with his contemporaries in the field of what one might term romantic epistemology. Schelling and Fichte say, who were based at the university town of Jena, the romantic theorists A.W. and Friedrich Schlegel, from whom Coleridge imported the term romantic into English, and the poets Novalis and Tieck. The so-called Jena School operated from 1798 to 1804, that is just as Friedrich had begun to settle in Dresden, and was located um, about 150 kilometers due west. The Dresden Enlightenment critic Friedrich von Randor, who publicly attacked Caspar David's cross in the mountains, we shall deal with this uh, painting later and the controversy it caused, um, by stating angrily um, that it was, quote Ramdor now, an impertinence for landscape painting to seek to worm its way into the church and crawl upon the altar. It was designed as an altar, or intended as an altarpiece. Uh, he encapsulates in the following vivid, if negative way, the overall impact, impact of the Jena school. He says now, Ramdor, that mysticism that is now insinuating itself everywhere and that comes wafting towards us like a narcotic vapor from art and science, from philosophy and religion. This romantic mysticism, if one may use such, a, um, such an overall term, uh, became much more prevalent in the culture of Germany than here in this country, pervading not only the realms of poetry, painting, and of course music, 
but science, philosophy, and theology as well. It is still uh, insufficiently realized, I think, that Romanticism is the source of major insights at work right into the present time, and that many of these are of German origin. Um, for instance, in the sciences, the concept of a holistic organicism was much more at home than it was here. As in the Naturphilosophie of Schelling and others, the medical and psychological work of Carl Gustav Karos, a friend of Friedrichs in Dresden, and the theology of Friedrich Schleiermacher, whose panentheism advocated a fusion of theism with pantheism by demonstrating that God is neither separate from the, the cosmos nor simply to be identified with it. Um, again, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, um, with the exception of Humphrey Davy and Coleridge consulting and working together during the 1790s, and Michael Faraday in electromagnetic fields, um, Romanticism as such, I believe, um, has made little impact in fields outside the arts over here. That is one of the main differences, I, as I see it, between uh, this country and, and Germany in terms of the overall culture. There, were, uh, there are um, reasons for this, I think, over here, but I haven't got time to go into them at the moment. Now, the second picture, Stephen, if we can have the second one. Yes. This was actually at the exhibition. Our second picture, Village Landscape in Morning Light, has for its focal point not a human figure, but an oak tree. Though, the, though a tiny shepherd, here, though a tiny shepherd with crook and flock is leaning against its huge trunk. The human is subsidiary, with the immediate landscape being in, inhabited and pastoral. The village of the title, just visible above the flat first horizon. You can see the church spire there. There are also some houses here. Um, the painting possesses a kind of classical calm, the elements of the composition being designed so as to reduce this effect. The tree is dead center and is crossed at right angles, not quite halfway up its trunk, by a bosky line of trees and bushes. Can you see what I mean? Almost a, a cross formation comes out there. Um, marked on the right by a church ruin and several houses. You, you may not be able to see them sufficiently there. This is the church ruin there. The long oval-shaped ponds in the meadowland um, of the foreground seem to reinforce this, at the same time accentuating the dark profile of the oak thrusting into the sky. The painting is sometimes titled Der Einsame Baum, the solitary tree, and its marked and solitary character Note the dead top, um, accrues meaning to itself so that we tend to think of it as something special, a tree of life perhaps with decay included, a symbol of immense natural power that connects the earth with the sky. It quite patently dominates the scene with presence very much its own, making it stand out against the rest of the landscape. Now, this focus on a single tree, or indeed any selected pronounced natural feature, as if it were a sentient being, becomes a characteristic of Romanticism in general. There is Cooper's Yardley Oak, Wordsworth's, Wordsworth's But There's a Tree of Many One, and Clare's Langley Bush. Just as in painting, we get Johann Christian Clausendahl's Birch Tree in a Storm. Could we have the next one of 1849? This is, this is Friend. 
uh, he, uh, he, um, he was Norwegian. Perhaps you can sharpen it a bit, Stephen, can we? It's, it's gone a bit out of focus. Yeah, that's fine. Um, um, apart then from the overall creation of landscape as we know it, which is a late 18th and early 19th century creation, but in line with this, what seems to have taken place is a resacralization of nature in which the natural world as a whole and specific features of it, such as mountains, waters, waterfalls, trees, and rocks, accrue to themselves a lost significance. In which the painters, um, in which um, the painters' colours are also deeply implicated. Could you go back once to the? I want just to go back to the other slide. Yes, sharpen that a bit. Um, as in um, the um, solitary tree uh, um, painting here. For note, first of all, the horizontal bands of colour. This is a very Friedrich uh, um, kind of uh, device. Um, in which you get the green fo uh, uh, foreground here. This is, um, this is always used to refer to the earth, to the world of the earthly. And the blue of the hills is always associated in Friedrich's paintings with the beyond, with eternity, if you like, or some world to which many of his figures in the paintings are yearning. Whereas in between, you get very often a yellow band, sometimes of ripe corn, which is the border territory between the one uh, sphere and, um, and the third. Um, and we can quote Caspar um, David himself here, um, the divine is everywhere. Uh, I believe John mentioned this, really. Uh, the divine is everywhere, even in a grain of sand. Here I have represented it in bulrushes. A Blakeian statement on his painting, Swans in the Rushes, that I, 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 I can't show you, I'm afraid. At an individual level and on a further spiral of history, therefore, we revert to an account of nature in no way fundamentally dissimilar from that of Australian Aborigines and American Indians, or at least pointing in the same direction. And with this link in mind, we should remember that the term ecology was first coined in German Ökologie by the 19th century German biologist Ernst Haeckel. So in this way, you can see how Friedrich's painting, paint paintings fit in with the whole theory of romantic organicism and uh, a holistic view of life and nature, and also that many of the ideas contained in this whole movement are still alive today, feeding very much uh, today. Also, of course, I won't have time to say this otherwise, this was done very much, we see this in Schelling, as a deliberate reaction against the mechanistic uh, um, um, natural science of the 18th and 17th century. One thinks of, of Goethe's uh, re, uh, um, kind of um, refusal to accept Newton's color theory, for instance. Anyway, to return to our oak tree now, in dark silhouette and as lonely presence, it would seem to contrast with the village community in the background. Symbolically, of course, as in most Friedrich paintings, the oak is subtly evocative. Um, it can be uh, Die Deutsche Eicher as well, the German oak, the very often kind of, of um, um, nationalist feelings rising up. But one has to remember that um, uh, um, Friedrich was, was before, 19, uh, before 1815, Dresden was occupied by French troops. Um, 
as one art historian, but, but anyway, this, this is part of its magic. The, the fact that the symbolism that, that, that um, Friedrich uses is, 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 uh, is subtle and, um, uh, um, and evocative. This is part of its magic. And as one art historian has put it, his concern is to express in paint thoughts and emotions which could not be put into words. And, and Friedrich himself here, just as the pious man prays without speaking a word, and the Almighty hearkens unto him, so the artist with true feelings paints and the sensitive man understands and recognizes it. It is finally important to remember that this picture was commissioned as one of a pair by the Berlin banker uh, Johann Heinrich Wagner, whose collection would later form the nucleus of the Berlin Nationalgalerie. The other half of the pair being our third picture, if you can show the third one, Moonrise Over the Sea, it is now worthwhile relating the two since Friedrich often purposely worked in pairs of paintings, on occasion in a seasonal series of four. Here we have a, a, a complementary yet contrastive pairing of morning and night so that the greater whole of one day is inferred. Not only this, but the complementary relations of the pair would indicate, I believe, that the dark oak points forward to the night scene of moonrise over the sea, just as the moon with its light illuminates the darkness of its surroundings, pointing forward to the coming day. In other words, the two pictures are polar opposites. And as with the yin-yang symbol of Taoism, the dark seed or spot in the white sigmoid half, connects it with the dark sigmoid half whose white seed or spot reconnects it back with the other half. Not that Friedrich was at all familiar with Taoism, as far as I know, although one or two art historians um, have pointed out a similarity between his unorthodox use of perspective and that of Far Eastern uh, landscape painting. But then Friedrich didn't need to, to be, since thinking in terms of polar opposites, what in German is called Polaritäten, is characteristically and deeply German, with its roots in alchemy, Jakob Böhme, and Goethe. Now, in our painting, the three people watching the moon rise, two women first, perhaps sisters or friends, the man, somewhat behind and slightly bent forward, as if in expectation, are seated on dark rocks on the shore, an expanse of shadowy and moonlit sea in front of them, with, with two returning ships on the left. Their gaze is fixed outwards and beyond, and because, as so often in Friedrich, we see them only from behind, or as here, partly from the side, uh, we have no idea from their faces what they are feeling. Um, certainly here, as in other pictures, there's a powerful sense of what the Germans call Heimweh, longing for home. Um, um, it's the romantic soul's longing also for home in a spiritual sense, um, but also it was used apparently in, um, in pietistic terminology for something similar in the Christian sphere. So it's very often difficult to say whether Friedrich is more romantic than pietist or pietist than romantic. There's a subtle combination uh, between the two. Certainly from their position on the huge central rock, their attention on the solemn scene in front of them with hands clasped around their laps, they shadow forth a meditative awareness of the, in this peaceful and hushed scene. One notes as well, in terms of the painting's organization, the presence of two ellipses set against each other. Um, 
but with a space of purple cloud in between, namely the curve of the central rock against the wide oval dip of the cloud cutting through the moon. That is to say, this is the one ellipse and this is the other. Um, it is impossible to say precisely what this conveys, and in any case, as Friedrich reiterates, painting expresses, quote, quote him, through color and form what words cannot render. But with this quote in mind, uh, the art historian Hugh Honor has said, thinking in line and color rather than in words and phrases, uh, Friedrich evolved his extraordinary personal style as if by guidance of his own inner light. This style, another writer on Friedrich, um, Werner Hoffmann, describes as, quote Hoffmann now, constructing networks built from tensions which could be intensified and developed into polarities. He gave his perception a distance which made the, exp the experiential world uncertain and made facts enigmatic, however exactly they were reproduced. In other words, uh, the, the, this is me now, not, not, not um, Hoffman. In other words, Friedrich always uh, set up a landscape in which distance and infinity are juxtaposed to nearness and foreground, which means that the immediately experienced world and its factual realities are made enigmatic, transferred to a different key. For to sum up at this point, the striking impression made by a Friedrich picture is that it possesses both a detailed and scrupulous record of natural phenomena, with a clarity and precision of outline, neoclassical perhaps rather than the romantic, yet at the same time a rapt stillness, an even flat surface, and a nuanced control of color, resulting in, trans in trance-like moods and qualities. This is the painter who typically refused to participate in Goethe's scheme for studying clouds. Um, Goethe was, was, um, was very much taken by um, a treatise on, uh, uh, by a young Englishman called Howard, I forget his, his first name now, on, on, on clouds. That is the point behind this. And um, Friedrich replied that for him it would be, quote, the end of landscape painting, since he wasn't interested, he said, in an objective understanding of the organic forces that determine natural phenomena, but a psychic response before nature. Friedrich's psychic response articulates itself via the above-mentioned structures of polarities combined with a subtle symmetrical balancing of verticals, especially central verticals, with horizontals, resulting in a quasi-geometrical imaginative patterning. He patterns nature every time, so has to lift it out of the natural onto the imaginative. Uh, in Friedrich's finest pictures, this visual language transforms the landscape, I really said this in other words, into immensely rich imaginative structures that we can meditate on and lose ourselves in endlessly, thereby attaining to something like natural icons. And it is therefore not for nothing that Werner Hoffmann speaks of an iconization of landscape, um, while Hugh Honor talks of visual subtlety, a unique manner of seeing and representing that strange intense polarity of closeness and distance of precise detail and sublime aura. Now, a personal reflection by C.G. Carus draws the above two pictures, I think, together. This is Carus now. Twilight was his element. He's speaking about Friedrich. A solitary walk early in the first morning light and then a second in the evening at sunset or after. 
morning and evening twilight, those between times, and again when the moon is out, are periods when shapes and objects lose their definiteness and become mysterious, calling forth imagination and speculation. And these were supremely fascinating to the Romantics, English as well as German. One thinks especially of the role played by the moon and moonlight in Coleridge's great poems, in Shelley and Keats, or that of Twilight in the early W.B. Yeats. On the German side, countless poems address themselves to the moon and its effects, such as Goethe's famous And in Mond and Eichendorff's Mondnacht. But equally, um, they become object and theme for reflection at the hands of the Naturphilosophen, um, as with G.H. Schubert, a disciple of Schelling and friend of Friedrich, whose treatise, Views on the Night Side of Nature, Ansichten von der Nachseite der Naturwissenschaft, became an influential romantic document. It is now time to introduce the key painting which ushered in Friedrich's artistic maturity. If you can put the next one on, Stephen. Namely, The Cross in the Mountains usually referred to as the Tetchen Altar, done in 1807 to 1808. The overtly religious work that caused so much controversy when first exhibited. Apparently, or so the story goes, the Countess von Thun-Hohenstein had come across a sepia drawing of a different cross in the mountains by Friedrich in the 1807 Dresden Academy exhibition. She then commissioned an altarpiece for the private chapel at Schloss Tetchen in Bohemia. What people eventually saw was a treatment of the crucifixion, which today would not in the least, I think, worry us, so that we may still be puzzled as to the extreme umbrage taken by many of the painter's contemporaries. Now with hindsight, we can see the historical and spiritual significance of Friedrich's treatment. For the altarpiece does not present us with a version of the actual crucifixion of Christ. Um, instead, as Robert Rosenblum has brilliantly interpreted the situation, we get an image um, of it in the form of carved artifact positioned in wild nature. Uh, such as we find everywhere in wayside shrines or on mountaintops in Bavaria and Austria. Indeed, Rosenblum is worth quoting in full uh, for the prophetic way in which he develops this perception. I want to quote now um, a fairly lengthy passage from him. If the conveying of the spirit of the crucifixion through the almost exclusive means of landscape seemed heretical to Rando, he left unnoticed an even more surprising innovation in the Tetchen altar, namely that the crucifixion Crucifixion itself is not a representation of a flesh and blood Christ on the cross, but rather of a gilded crucifix, that is, a man-made object, a relic of Christian ritual and art, of a sort that might be found on a pilgrimage route in the forest. As a result, the painting, surprisingly, could be interpreted as belonging entirely to a modern world of empirical observation although a world whose component parts have been selected and organized so carefully that each element is charged with meaning. Friedrich himself described the Christian implications of his painting, which could theoretically be only a secular scene of a crucifix viewed against a sunset. This is Friedrich now. The cross stands high on a rock, firm and unshakable like our faith in Christ. Fir trees surrounded, lasting through the seasons, like our hopes in him who was crucified. That's the end of the, uh, the Friedrich quote, now Rosenblum. Thus, even without the presence of the crucifix that faces the concealed sunset, 
the landscape itself, in its dramatic contrast of the closeness of firm rock and tree against the remoteness of a, of a pervasive luminosity whose setting source is hidden from us, would suggest some uncommon event in nature, composed in terms of an emblematic polarity of dark and light, near and far, palpable and impalpable. Friedrich's peculiarly modern ambition to alter the iconography of, early, of earlier Christian art in the interests of resurrecting faith in the supernatural can be seen in many other paintings that offer what might be called a spectator approach to Christianity, in which we observe scenes of piety and ritual and man-made objects of Christian art and architecture. These man-made objects and natural facts the cross, the anchor, the moonrise, could all be explained empirically as the record of something that might plausibly be observed on an island's coast at nightfall. Yet again, any other distracting objects or events lend everything a fresh Christian meaning. How pivotal Friedrich's transformation of religious painting is for the modern tradition uh, may be suggested by the fact that even Gauguin's Yellow Christ of 1889 is part of its progeny. A painting not of the crucifixion, but rather of a man-made crucifix in Brittany, an object worshipped by those simple peasants who, like Friedrich's wayfarers, monks and mariners, still maintain their Christian faith in a modern world of doubt. Friedrich's shift from traditional Christian subject matter to its surrogates, the trappings of Christian piety and the phenomena of nature, was truly of vast consequence for later art. That's the end of the Rosenblum quotation. Now, in 1808, however, the cross in the mountains was viewed quite differently, with, Fried with Friedrich Wilhelm von Randow holding the influential post of Chamberlain at the court of the King of Saxony, and playing a key role in stirring up the religious and aesthetic controversy that began to surround the painting. The unique combination of Protestant pietism and romanticism manifested in Friedrich's altarpiece was truly unsettling, and the Ramdor dispute, as it became known, was fought not only on religious grounds, but on aesthetic ones. Uh, two, arguing that with Rusdael, Poussin and Claude, their forms were arranged to bring out the interrelationships of nature, this is Ramdor, reflecting and diffusing light in a correct treatment of atmospherics with a coherent spatial recession from the spectator to the horizon, Ramdor went on to say this in his 1809 published essay. But before I do this, could we go on one slide to show you the detail? I'm sorry, no. Um, this is the, uh, what I... Um, could you sharpen this a bit? Yes. I thought I'd put in... A, this, is, um, this is Claude, uh, Apollo with the Muses, which gives you a very good idea of what Rando had in mind. This is the kind of Renaissance, uh, um, um, orthodox, scientific perspectivism going from the front here to the uh, uh, right to infinity, uh, which, which you don't get in Friedrich at all. And this is why he was very unsettling. And now this is what Ramdor had to say. It follows that a fine landscape must represent several planes, this is what you get in Claude, the better to display the beauties of linear perspective, yet a single object in a landscape, such as a tree, a mountain peak, a house, or a still sheet of water, definitely does not belong to the very front. 
He didn't like, of course, this triangular um, uh, um, uh, foreground of rock that, that, um, that Friedrich uh, paints there for us. It also follows that the landscape ought not to portray any one detail as if seen from close up, bereft of the haze of air, and that it ought not to represent twilight or darkness, in which aerial perspective and the sense of light are completely lost. Now, Ramdor, a conservative yet highly intelligent connoisseur of Renaissance and Enlightenment art, is here giving expression to a traditionally perspectivist attitude to nature, incapable of seeing what Friedrich is up to. The coherent spatial recession, he talks about unifying the paintings of Ruzdal, Poussin, and Claude around a scientific viewpoint and superimposed on the real world like a grid, would be totally unable to structure and embody the fractured, divided world of the early 19th century. Friedrich captures this memorably by the way in which his paintings switch levels from the usually earthbound foregrounds um, out, uh, um, cut across by the lower edge of the frame to distant backgrounds of mysterious infinity without any middle ground being interposed to mediate the two realms. This is a new kind of romantic perspective, eminently suited to capturing the separation between the here and now and the beyond, together with the yearning of the former for the latter. It was this that made Rando exclaim that the Tetian altar was, quote, an offense against all the basic rules of optics. I take it he has Newton in mind there with optics. He is far more at home um, this is Ramdor now, with the uh, conventional Christian symbolism of the frame, designed as a retable for the painting by Friedrich himself. Uh, can we just go back for a moment, Stephen, to the, uh, uh, go back to the, yes, to that. Um, this, is, this, this is the frame we have. And what is um, of just, I want to point out now, of connecting interest here is the uh, triangle down the bottom enclosing the eye of God, um, which, which seems deliberately echoed in the triangular uh, uh, space of mounting on which Christ is being crucified. And of course you get the rays of light coming from this just as the rays of light from the eye of God. Now, the Ramdor dispute is curiously paralleled by the so-called atheism dispute or atheismusstreit that surrounded Fichte roughly a decade earlier and forced him to resign his professorship at Jena University in 1800. The cause of all this was his essay published in 1798 on the basis of our belief in a divine providence which argued for neither a theistic nor simple pantheistic position but what Father Frederick Copleston has called, quote, a dynamic panentheistic idealism, which Fichte identified with a supersensible world order in the form of an active ordering, ein tätiges ordnen, or ordo ordinans, very far from atheism, of course, so that Fichte, mortified and angered, published a lengthy reply to his detractors, but to no avail. He then left for Berlin, where his influence on the theologian Schleiermacher has already been implied. It is impossible to say uh, to what extent Friedrich was familiar with Fichte's work. But as founding father of the Jena school of Romanticism, together with the younger generation of Schelling, Novalis, and the Schlegel brothers, Friedrich must have known something about his ideas and work. 
In any case, it is not difficult to see in the artist's pictures a visual analogy with Fichte's epistemology. The philosopher's fundamental positing of a transcendental I often, um, not, perhaps not so much mistranslated, but translated into English very often as ego, which brings in the wrong uh, um, kind of vibrations, as it were, and a not-I, nature, in opposition, but also in constant contact with each other, makes for a self-conscious awareness that includes, quoting Copelson now, a, distinct, a distinction between the I-subject and the me-object. And in all this, the originating activity stems for Fichte from the eye. In Friedrich's paintings, the inclusion of human figures who are themselves engaged in perception, often decipherable as clear surrogates for the artist himself, together with the divide between foreground and background, presents us with something like a Fichtean view of reality. This is not to say, of course, that we get Fichte's philosophy simply turned into paint. But there is a sense in which these isolated figures separate from but intimately involved with the landscape around and beyond them reciprocally create and are created by what they see. Hence Fichte's and Friedrich's stress on the productive imagination, uh, die produktive Einbildungskraft, this is Fichte's phrase, and an infinite striving and yearning, also Fichte's phrase, ein unendliches Streben und Sehnen. A.W. Schlegel's designation of romantic art as a symbolical representation of the infinite fits in here. And Schelling, the Naturphilosoph of, of Jena uh, Romanticism par excellence, states in his Concerning the Relationship of the Fine Arts to Nature of 1807, the artist must follow the spirit of nature working at the core of things and speak through form and shape as by symbols only. Um, and he uses a, a marvelous phrase. He talks there about imagination as being the promised land, the promised land. Um, this is directly relevant to Friedrich's painterly concerns, and two of Schelling's students, um, I've already mentioned them, uh, Christian August Semmler and Gotthilf Heinrich von Schubert, uh, were not only friends of Friedrich, but, uh, but romantic theorists. Um, who, as William Vaughan has noted, were concerned to investigate, quote, the expression of spiritual awareness through the use of nature symbolism in the visual arts. Schubert, in fact, while lecturing, used to refer to Friedrich's work in illustrating his theory of the dark side of natural science, die Nachtseite der Naturwissenschaft. Now, to, re to recapitulate and move on a step further, the opening up of a self-conscious awareness via the I and the not-I in Fichte, something continued in Schelling, and indeed the whole Jena school, eventually issues in what is known as romantische ironie, romantic irony. The product of a conscious recognition of the gulf between reality and ideality, reason and emotion. This concept and formulation we owe mainly to Friedrich Schlegel, who was a distinguished Orientalist. They indicate an irony that is really metaphysical, pointing to an awareness of incongruities um, existing in man's position in the universe, whereby the interaction of the subjective with the objective creates ironic tensions. This kind of irony, usually misunderstood here and in America, um, has nothing to do with verbal irony and wit or the social ironies of Jane Austen, say. This, uh, um, 
it is much closer to the structure and positioning of Blake's songs of innocence and experience or the writings of Samuel Beckett. It is also applied to a consciously adopted artistic stance, as in Schlegel's own example of Petrarch. Even Petrarch, he said, smiles at his sentimentality. Or in music with uh, Gustav Mahler's deliberate guying of his own feelings. In existentialist thinking, too, the same idea is developed further with a clear recognition of its romantic he uh, heritage, as in uh, Kierkegaard's the, the Concept of Irony of 1841, where he says of Fichte, he rendered the ego infinite as I equals I, and with this he emancipated infinite thought. And two pages later, Kierkegaard says, throughout this discussion, I use the expressions irony and the ironist, but I could as easily say romanticism and the romanticist. Both expressions designate the same thing. As a final extension of my commentary, Keeping in mind the I and the not I, the visual expression of polarities, and the use of human figures gazing at the landscape, I would like to make a connection between Friedrich's art and that of the East, via the Japanese um, tanker form in poetry. This is the predecessor of the haiku, with roots going back to the ninth century, and offers a more complex view of reality. In a fascinating anthology and commentary on the tradition of Jisei, or Farewell Poems to Life, the Orientalist Joel Hoffman has this to say. Most tanker contain two poetic images. The first is taken from nature, the second, which may proceed, follow, or be woven into the first, is a kind of meditative complement to the nature image. Tanker produce a certain dreamlike effect presenting images of reality without that definite quality of realness often possessed by photographs or drawings, as if the image proceeded directly from the mind of the dreamer. The tanker poet may be likened to a person holding two mirrors in his hands, um, one reflecting a scene from nature, the other reflecting himself as he holds the mirror, as, as, as he holds the first mirror. The tanker thus provides a look at nature, but it regards the observer of nature as well. That's the end of the, uh, the quote. As a portrayal of a Friedrich painting, this is uncannily accurate, I feel, even though as far as I know, there is not the remotest influence um, of the one on the other. But the similarity is highly intriguing. And we may recall what I briefly mentioned in connection with the painting Moonrise Over the Sea, namely that one or two art historians have pointed to the similarity between Friedrich's unorthodox perspective and that of Far Eastern landscape painting. But there are others. Um, could we go on to the next? Um, and, yes, uh, go on farther. Yes. Yes, and yes, that's a detail of the, of the, of the, um, the Tetchen altar. Uh, and farther, I think, uh, yes. Um, this is the Monk by the Sea of 1809, um, and of which um, Heinrich von Kleist said that when he looked at it, he thought that his eyelids were cut off. Um, but there are others. The overall sense of human beings embedded in and overawed by a surrounding landscape, aspects of this landscape which intimate the presence um, of the Christian altar, uh, and Father, I think, uh, Yes. Um, this is the Monk by the Sea of 1809. 
um, and of which um, Heinrich von Kleist said that when he looked at it, he thought that his eyelids were cut off. Um, but there are others. The overall sense of human beings embedded in and overawed by a surrounding landscape, aspects of this landscape which intimate the presence um, of the beyond um, or the void. And this is why I show you this one. It's a, a very unusual painting for its time, extremely unusual. The general order of quiet serenity and depth, stillness and contemplation. You can get the next one, which gives you just a close-up of what we get there. Which is my life. This is the monk. Probably Friedrich himself dressed as a monk. Um, stillness and contemplation, the awareness of transience and death, and an unusual sense of space, graded and subdued coloring, and a beautiful uncluttedness reminiscent of the artist's own studio. Uh, uh, just the note on this is that uh, um, Friedrich's studio was empty of all kinds of decoration. He said that it really interfered with his inner vision. So there were, there were no pictures, nothing at all, and we do have a painting by another Dresden artist of Friedrich himself at work in his own studio, and it's totally bare. It's very like the, uh, the bit that you saw of the woman at the window. Um, for as Novalis once said, this is relating the Far East to, 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 to Friedrich now, the most distant and diverse sagas and occurrences are linked together. Thank you very much. Yes. destroy the painting. Yes, that's right. This is one of the points I try to bring out, obviously, that this is, it, it, therefore it makes it very difficult to comment in detail on his paintings. Um, and, and, uh, but this is the fascination of the paintings. Right. Yeah. And I did, this, was a, this I only discovered, I mean, I may be totally wrong on this issue, uh, the connection between Friedrich and the Far East, but it was something that, when I was preparing this lecture, suggested itself more and more to me. And particularly in the light of one or two comments I, I'd read by art historians that there was a similarity they found between his, his, his peculiar romantic uh, perspective on nature and what we get um, in the Far East. Because what is fascinating is that um, if you compare Far Eastern painting, landscape painting with, with the West, I mean, it's always been a major tradition from as long back as you can think um, in China, yeah. a major tradition landscape. And with man in this, you know, right in it or a part of it. Whereas here in the West, it only comes out very granularly, as you know. It it it, it emerges very late. And so um, Friedrich, in some sense, in going back to landscape, in the way he does, sets up for me all kinds of vibration of vibrations which connect with the East in this way. Yes, yes. And that I found particularly fascinating. 
Yes, please do. Yes, please do. Two things yeah. I'd like to draw out. Yes, please do. The, the, I mean, um, when you look at Friedrich, mm. yeah. you can see the mountains as the archetypal work, yes. the snow as purity, yeah. um, uh, um, the left foot forward, That's right. Yes. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. one, can, one can see all, all this vocabulary, but the moment, like a certain, uh, his, his name eludes me, a certain German um, artist saw him did, he'd more or less read the painting. Yeah. And the sort of basic symptoms yeah. and destroyed them. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. I hand somebody, somebody. Can't remember his name. Ziedelmeier? Huh? Was it Ziedelmeier? No, he, he wrote the other part. Oh, of the I see. Yes, oh, I see. Yeah. The other thing I, I'd like to set, bring up is that I feel that um, in Friedrich we have the whole problem of the loss of a true iconography in the West, and as my dear friend Cecil Collins would have said, and a sensitive soul, i.e. the romantic, <coughs> struggling for mm. an iconographic language. And in, in, when you think of Protestant, I mean, the Catholics flogged the crucifixion to death one way or another. <coughs> but the Protestants, they, they were thrown back um, onto themselves in a way that the Italians um, never had to go back on themselves. So they had this um, Raphaelesque um, pictorial language. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the English went to language uh, at, 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 at a salvation point. They could no longer paint religious pictures. Yes, Rubens came under to London, Whitehall, etc., under um, the child uh, the Stuart Kings, but um, essentially the English were forced back on language, and we have this wonderful tradition of um, Shakespeare, of, of our poetic heritage. Germans, we find this pietism in Bach's cantatas. I kept on thinking of Bach's cantatas, mm -hmm. also when you were showing his painting, and it seems to me that what Friedrich has done. He's, he's, and this is where he, 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 you find this connection with the East and the idea of, of the icon, in a sense. I don't like using that word because it's so debased in the turn of the century. Um, and that he is discovering the, the, this inner language mm -hmm. of, it, of his own. Mm -hmm. And we, at some point, mm -hmm. like um, the figures, or we have to look into the painting, just like the figures, so we have mm -hmm. to go through them. Mm -hmm. It's not like a modern literature with priest stands to you mm -hmm. and, uh, and make gesticulate, but he's taking you in mm -hmm. into the landscape, mm -hmm. which which is both, um, as it were, sacred, mm -hmm. symbolical, mm -hmm. and causing this, um, or inducing this state of meditative silence. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. another point is that you can't reproduce these paintings, you have to see them. Like the monk up, up, up one sort of end. If you see the actual painting, your eyelids are literally pulled off. But I've said too much. I like other people to, to share their thoughts. Thank you, John, anyway, yes. What was the title of the Wanderer? What was the title of that picture? Uh, the Wanderer Above the Sea of Mists. It's a 
It's interesting because it is actually, in a sense, not a particularly gentle picture. What I was thinking of as you were describing the, the, the attributes of the wanderer, it always intrigued me that in the I Ching, the, 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 the sign of the wanderer moves into the sign of the gentle as a progression. Because the wanderer has no home, he moves into the sign of the gentle. Actually, that picture was quite a, it's not a gentle picture, it's quite a harsh picture in a strange way. Well, I uh, are you thinking of the landscape now more than the figure, or both? Or, or, or the effect it had on me was was yes. was 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 wrong. Did you agree? Yes. I found yes. it quite quite a frightening picture. Yes, I think this is this is this is, this is also true. Um, well, it it as I say, we we can't see the face of the wanderer, but it also what he sees in front of him must also be quite frightening for him. I mean, he's looking right down into the, to, to, to chasms, and the mist there is, is, is it isn't like, uh, there's a very, um, there's quite a difference, I think, between the middle part of the picture that he's looking at or looking down into, and the far bit beyond this kind of, of triangle that I pointed out, which is really kind of rather serene in the sky. The yes, and that is right in going into infinity. But what he is looking at seems to me to be the turmoil of life, as it were, I don't know how we interpret it, and this is quite fearsome. Um, except he's above it. Uh, except he's above it. That's right. His stance makes you feel that he thinks he is Monica Maurice of age. There's also that quality. Yeah. There's a kind of commanding presence to yeah. him. This is true. Very much a commanding yes. presence. Is Votan the before Wagner? What? Is Votan the wanderer as well before Wagner? Well, this is possible. I, I, I thought at one stage it, uh, it's a bit like Faust. I'm sorry, you, you, you can say something. I was just thinking, for me, in a sense, he's on the brink. Yes. And he's at that, he's at the point. Yes. Where he was moved. That's right. Uh, it, it's very difficult That's to say, yes. It's very difficult to say, yes, yes. yes. There's certainly there that there. Yes, yes. That's right. We interpret as some people have the mist in, to explain it, represents doubt. In one's faith, and the mountains representing, um, and rocks representing the archetypal world, and this this poor um, lonely soul is actually struggling. Either it goes backward and goes back into the valleys, valleys symbolizing the, the world of mere mortality, um, or he he his way embraces what is beyond him through the the mists of doubt. In, to, to the archetype world represented by the mountains. That's how this painting has been um, interpreted. interpreted by Hans, whatever his name is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just like Ibsen's, Ibsen's brand. Ibsen's brand is like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will fall or nothing and I will go. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, that's, that's a good point, I feel, because now you've, you've, you've put it into my mind. There is almost, uh, you know, I, I brought out at the beginning the connection between part of Germany that, that, um, that Friedrich came from, Greifswald, that is in uh, uh, Pomerania, right on the Baltic, and this connection with Scandinavia. And there is something, uh, now, now you mention it, uh, a little bit Ibsen-like in a symbolic way now, between that picture and, and, and uh, plays like Brandon. That's the void in front of him, it's the leap of faith. It's That's, yes, 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 yes. Was there any forest not available for him to have seen? 
Pardon? Any, any uh, Chinese, I take it from you. Yes, that I, don't, that I don't know, Kathleen. Yes. Um, what I must now try to do to see if I can dig up research-wise some connection between the Eastern and, 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 and Friedrich. Uh, 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 what I did mention um, um, in passing is that, um, uh, was it, I can't, uh, it's A.W. Schlegel, I think, was the Orientalist. I mean, there was a, uh, there was a lot of study of Oriental language and, and cultures going on in, in Germany long before here. Yes, but you see, hmm. the, the uh, influence that came in at that time was yes. from India. Yes, and yes, absolutely. It's a very, very different story. Yes, that's what true. What you're describing. Yes, yes. And in fact, it seems almost the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's not at all uh, similar to what Yes, 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 yes. I know Stephen's work, yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh yes, uh, the, obviously the Germans were, were, were very quick onto the connections between India and their own particular interests. This, this is certainly true, which, uh, um, um, particularly with uh, Hinduism, and Hinduism, and Stephen points out the way in which the Upanishads came over here. Yes, um, th this, uh, this is very true. Um, also, what I didn't know up until fairly recently, that in the later part of the 18th century, the Germans also knew something about Siberian shamanism, and that Goethe started learning uh, uh, um, Russian because of this, apparently, uh, that either, you know, kind of dug up shamans in full-scale dress, one or two of these examples and, and, and shamanistic costumes were available in German museums or collections. And so they were beginning to know something of what was going on in the shamanistic tradition. I heard nothing about the shamanism, but there doesn't seem to be much. Uh, it's what one looks for is the Chinese. Yes, uh, yes. I, I simply don't know there, um, Kathleen, at all. I, I really have to... to, to to see if I can find out anything. But if there is no connection, yes. in some sense, it's all the more interesting. Well, indeed. It's very interesting. Yes. There may be, uh, this is perhaps very tenuous, but yes. I think what you get Or collections. And so they were beginning to know something of what was going on in the shamanistic tradition. I heard nothing about the shamanism, but there doesn't seem to be much. Uh, it's what one looks for is the Chinese. Yes, uh, yes. I, I simply don't know there, um, Kathleen, at all. I, I really have to, 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 uh, to see if I can find out anything. But if there is no connection, yes. in some sense, it's all the more interesting. Well, indeed. It's very interesting. Yes. There the may be, uh, this is perhaps very tenuous, but yes. I think when you go to Dresden, you have a very strong sense of the Chinese connection through the porcelain. Yes. And subsequently, um, the development of all of that around yes. and Dresden around yeah. there. Oh, that's and true. therefore the decoration of the palaces there. That's true. And therefore I think, and of course this is uh, contemporary with the time that he was working. That's right, that's true. And therefore I think it might have been very much in the air. That's a possibility. That's a good these things point. after all were wrapped in. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, we have to remember though that the 18th century in Germany was full of these Yes. 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 Think of Burma. Yes. We think of, and uh, you can't relate to Herd or Goethe without 
going into an enormous background mm. Uh, mm. of esoteric mm. thought. Mm. So, uh, whereas she was a really, was more a la mode, you know, I want yes. to move, mm. <laughs> move on mm. with something or, or oriental, you find it in Tiepolo, uh, and whereas uh, painted that period, uh, which, is, which is where we're talking about. Um, but I, I think someone like Friedrich was really drawing on that Protestant esoteric background. Oh yes, oh yes, there's no question of this. Any suggestion with the, with the East is, is because in the end of the day, we all are created in the image of God, mm -hmm. and we all share in a fundamental garden of concepts mm -hmm. and ideas. Mm -hmm. But Friedrich, to me, is really someone who's absolutely so head to fall mm -hmm. in this background. Mm -hmm. of the, mm -hmm. He may not have written any books, mm -hmm. but the ideas were shared you know, yeah, in yeah. pubs or yeah. in. Anyway, for instance, if you go back to the Jena school, you know, I mean, it was, it was really um, an intellectual powerhouse. And it, you know, there are all kinds of, of I, I mean, uh, Fichte was there, Schelling was there, Schiller was there to begin with as well. There was Novalis, uh, uh, Ludwig Tich, who translated uh, Shakespeare into German. And one has the feeling also that Jena, but also other parts, were open to a lot of ideas um, all over the place. They weren't kind of locked in in themselves, if you see what I mean. So they may have been onto something there that, that, um, uh, that we um, didn't get on to. It wasn't for nothing that Coleridge decided to study in Germany, where he thought it was all happening. And he was right, of course. Yes. Because the Germans really appreciated our beloved Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. 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 Yeah, yeah. Any other points uh, people would like to raise? Could I ask Please. you to amplify yeah. a very small point? Yes. But I thought for sure that more than once while you were talking, his sense of the wanderer. Yeah. Um, you, did I hear you say that he gave a, a talk or a lecture called The Dark Side of... Oh no, that's a different Schubert. Oh. I'm sorry, I should have passed <laughs> it. That was something called uh, um, um, Gotthilf uh, Friedrich Schubert. Uh, um, it sounded out of yes, character. No, they, they're two different Schuberts. Two different Schuberts. Yeah. It, it, uh, it was just that um, I, I, I wanted to point out the, 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 um, the pervasiveness of the wanderer image, as it were, not only in, in, in Goethe and, and, and in Goethe, but in music as well. Yes, I, I thought of Der Hirt auf dem Felsen. Pardon? Der Hirt, der Hirt auf dem Felsen, that's right, sure. Yeah, that's, that's right, that's true. That's true, I hadn't thought of it. What that occurred to you with regard to the Friedrich Wanderer above the mist? Uh, yes. Ah, yes. that's I a good point. Yes, 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 that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Lovely piece. Yeah. Brilliant. Your emphasis on more dawn and twilight. Yes. It's very important. Yes. When you think of Goethe's theory of colours. Yes. And where he sees the eye as a looking through a prism mm -hmm. rather than um, Newton's idea of yeah. you introduce a ray. So you're introducing yeah. immediately the ray of, of the heart mm -hmm. into, the, into the prism. And mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. look through a prism, mm -hmm. of course, all these wonderful rainbow mm -hmm. colours come. And um, they are the most magical moments, <coughs> when, especially at dawn, when mm. you actually, for a mm. few seconds, see mm. nature mm. Um, in prismatically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
that last moment at night can be that great, you know, that wonderful last painting, I can't remember its title, already, with the river near Dresden. Or oh, the woman at the window, you mean? The woman at the window? The one I showed you in the catalogue at the beginning. And we have this lonely boat going. Oh, I know what you mean. The one I haven't showed is that's Grosse Gehege to Dresden. Um, the large enclosure. Enclosure. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. yes. that's a marvellous painting. Yeah, Absolutely marvellous. Yes. And that is this kind of, of um, almost as a uh, Far Eastern uh, uh, serenity and, 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 and space about it. Yeah. The figures are nearly always painted from behind. That's right. You know, That's right. Hardly, the, the face is never shown. It's very rarely shown. Very rarely. Uh, perhaps before we, uh, I know it's it's after um, um, Stephen. Uh, could we have um, a couple um, uh, of the uh, slides? Perhaps we can show them with the, with part of the lights on. Can we? Um, I must show you one or two. Uh, uh, one particular painting um, that. Um, where you do see um, a little bit more, the same rule applies, but it's such a stunning painting. Um, I just want you to see this. This is the one of the, um, of the cliffs on the island of Rügen. Um, yes, that you see the woman a bit there more, but you, again, you don't see these two. Um, that is a fantastic picture, I think. And again, in some sense, you know, kind of, uh, whether he's looking at the grass, he's looking right over and she's pointing down. Again, we get this sense of looking into the abyss, as it were, as with the wanderer. And perhaps the next slide, which points it, that's the only one I want to show you. See, now we see a little, Kathleen, but again, only from the side. We have to draw attention to the influence that Friedrich had over the over the Danish school and the Swedish school of uh, landscape painting. Yes, I'm sure he must have had, yes, yes. Yes, yes, this is true. 